think we all know the pedigree of the Cornell Lab of Ornithology when it comes to bird resources, and we at the ABA are excited to partner with the Cornell Lab of O to offer an amazing deal exclusive to ABA members. ABA members can now get a 15% discount to any new subscription to Cornell's amazing new Birds of the World resource that is applicable for three years. Birds of the World is a powerful resource that brings deep scholarly content from four celebrated works of ornithology into a single platform where birders can answer all their life history questions for every species of bird they could want. It is extraordinary. You can get more information at birdsoftheworld.org. Hello and welcome to the American Birding Podcast from the American Birding Association. I am Nate Swick, your host. I hope this episode finds you well, maybe a little hopeful. I want to start off with uh, a little bit of a brag or maybe just, you know, catching up on an episode from a month or so ago. You might remember if you are a regular listener back when Frank Zagiri and Donna Shulman and I talked bird books back at the end of 2020. Uh, and I had put all the birds of the world, the Lynx editions, new Lynx editions book edited by Jose Del Hoyo on my list, despite not actually having had the book in my hands at the time. Well, friends, that has finally been remedied. I, I, I did get my copy from Beautio Books. It had been back ordered for a few weeks. Let, let me tell you, I would still put it on my list. In fact, I would actually move it up my list. That is, that is no slight to the other authors I included. Those top five lists are typically very fluid anyway. But all the things that Donna and Frank said about it were, were so obviously true. Uh, as as they are. It, it is a fantastic book. But there is one thing that I did want to add that I would have said then had I seen the book at the time, uh, something that really stood out to me, and that is the maps, right? I am a, I'm a big fan of maps, just in general. I think one of the reasons birding appeals to me like it does is because there's the strong geography component baked in. Uh, you know, uh, when you get a field guide, though, uh, and I have a lot of field guides from all over the world. The map is sort of static. It's small. It's a little tiny, you know, zoomed in map of whatever region that you are, your field guide is for. You know, it's the U.S. and Canada or it's Central America or it's India or East Africa or whatever. And for the birds in those books, you know, even the, even the very widespread ones, you only get that little small map, right? Just the region of the book. So the one thing that I love about all the birds of the world is that in terms of the maps, the scope is the entire world. The range maps show the entire range of these birds, not that zoomed in snippet. So you get, you see that great horned owls really do go all the way down to Southern South America. Horned larks really are all over the Northern hemisphere. And yes, I can get that stuff from eBird, but there's, there's something extremely satisfying about the traditional range map, even if I acknowledge that it's not the most useful thing except as sort of a, a generalization. Anyway, that's what I would have said had I known then what I know now, so I'm going to say it now. Still a great book, lots of fun, well worth the investment if you are a bird book junkie uh, like I am. And I know from listening to the responses to our birding book club episodes, there's a lot of you out there. But first... On the show this week, I made a call for Pileated Woodpecker Stories, and you answered. Uh, I got a handful. I'll be parsing them out over the next few weeks. Feel free to send me more if you like. I'd love to hear them. Uh, the first one is from Beth Cottom 
of Murray, Utah. Not a place that has many pileated woodpeckers, but her story is resonant just the same. It's a tale of nature, serendipity, and who doesn't like those? But first, let's talk about the high, high Arctic. I'm joined by writer, photographer, and birder of Arctic Bay, Claire Kynes. We talk about birding, none of it, right after this week's Rare Birds. This is your Rare Bird Focus for the third week of January, 2021. A little bit of a slower week this week, but a few things to note. The tundra bean goose that was in Delaware County, Pennsylvania late in 2020 was refound this week next door in Philadelphia County, an exciting rediscovery for Pennsylvania County listeners and all others who might have missed it the first time around. It's still being seen. Up in Connecticut, a Ross's goal at Hamanasset State Park was an exciting find as any discovery of this pink waif of the high Arctic is anywhere south of well. Uh, none of it. Unfortunately, it was a one-day wonder. The sea giveth and the sea taketh away in short order. And in first record news, a ferruginous hawk photographed in Orange County, New York, is a potential first state record. And one of only a few records of this open country western raptor in the eastern part of the continent. Though there are, rather surprisingly, a fair number in southern Ontario, not too far away. So maybe this one should have been on the short list. Those are the ABA Rarity highlights of the last week. As always, for a more complete look, you can check out the ABA's Rare Bird Alert every Friday morning at aba.org slash RBA, or you can go to our Rare Bird Facebook page. That's facebook.com slash groups slash ABA Rare, or follow us on Twitter at ABA Bird Alert. If you were in the bird blogging scene way back in the pre-social media internet landscape, you're probably familiar with Claire Kynes. His blog, The House and Other Arctic Musings, was a familiar voice in the birdosphere telling stories about the nature of Arctic Bay, Nunavut, on Baffin Island in the Canadian Arctic. Though it, sadly, is no more like so many of our bird blogs. Uh, he's still out there as a birder and photographer sharing stories and images of a part of the world we don't get to see very often. He joins me to talk about it. Welcome, Claire. I feel like I've known you for a long time, but this is the first time I've ever had an actual conversation with you. Thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's uh, been a long time that uh, we've known each other virtually, but uh, this is our first <laughs> yeah. conversation for sure. For those who may not know Canadian or Arctic geography very well, where is Arctic Bay? So Arctic Bay is the on the north end of Baffin Island. Baffin Island's uh, one of the high Arctic islands. It's the fifth largest island in the world. And we're at 73 degrees north. So that makes us Canada's third most northerly community. Wow. And what is the, what is the landscape like there? It's spectacular here. Um, I live in one of the most beautiful places in the world. I may be biased about that, but uh, there's lots of people that agree, agree with me. Arctic Bay itself sits in a, kind of a, a bowl of, of hills and small mountains and on the bay. We're on uh, one of Canada's oceans, the Arctic Ocean. And around here, we have fairly mountainous country and fjords. Um, Arctic Bay, the, bay, the body of water opens up into Adam Sound, which is uh, a fjord. Yeah, when I think of like the Arctic, I think of, you know, tundra, flat, relatively featureless, but uh, the islands of Nunavut are, are something completely different, it sounds like. Yeah, no, we're, uh, we have uh, just around the corner from here, we have the St. George Society Cliffs uh, 
I'm home to a nesting pair of deer falcons, and uh, they're red vertical 600 foot cliffs that plunge right into the ocean. So, yeah. So, so you know, aside from deer falcon, you know, what kind of birds can you find there that birders, you know, maybe farther south would be would be really excited about or get really excited about whenever you whenever you talk about your your backyard birds. Well, we have kind of a two-headed monster of birds here. We have a birds that uh, are around all 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 year long which many of your people will be familiar with. We have um uh, our most common winter bird is the the raven and uh, we also have ptarmigan and Currently, there's some red poles, both common and hoary, that are here. And the deer falcon do winter at times. We have some fairly reliable information on that. But in the spring, it really starts to explode with uh, with birds. We have a lot of different shorebirds here, and uh, we're kind of on the 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 border of two subspecies of red knots. For instance, uh, we get both uh, red knots from from Europe. The Islandica subspecies and the North American ones. It's kind of the north end of their their breeding uh, breeding area, and the south end of the Islandica subspecies. We also have a number of different species of gulls. Uh, some that would probably make uh, some of your listeners salivate, such as the ivory gull. Um, <laughs> there is possibly a very near nesting colony of uh, Ross's gulls too, but that hasn't been confirmed. Um, we get black-legged kittiwakes, our most common gull is Glaucus gull, and we have, uh, um, I was going to say Thayer's gull, but uh, Iceland gull, Thayer subspecies, is uh, also very common here in the summer. Um, we, of course, have uh, breeding populations of snowy owl, very healthy peregrine falcon uh, population here. Um huh. Our seabirds over the flow edge, and the flow edge is just a magical place that we maybe talk about. We have like thick billed murres and uh, black gilmot, and uh, but a number of other species up, up there as well. Eiders, king and common. Before I get too far, like what, what exactly you're talking about the ice flow edge, like the edge of the, the ice cap, the Arctic ice cap that comes. How close does it get to you this time of year? Uh, well, this time of year, so we have landfast ice. We have our, our ocean is frozen for uh, about nine months of the year. We have about three months of open water season. At the mouth of Admiralty Inlet, so if you are looking at a, a map of Baffin Island, it's got a great big slash down the top of it, and that's Admiralty Inlet. Mm-hmm. Lancaster Sound, which uh, which that mouth opens up into, has ice that's not land fast so there's pack ice in there moving ice sometimes it freezes over completely but it's it's generally moving and rough um but at the mouth there we have land fast ice so it's it's attached to the land and it's like that for much of the winter Mm -hmm. the flow edge is the edge of that land fast ice where it meets um okay um in the early part of the season that's right up by the mouth of uh admiralty inland and as the season progresses it gets closer and closer to arctic bay and and moves south as it breaks up but it's um in the spring it, there's open water and some pack and it's a just a, a magical place so just because of birds or wildlife marine mammals i guess all all of the above <laughs> all of the above um there's uh, yeah thousands of birds up there uh, of course and you also see uh, migratory 
migrating birds go through uh, flocks of shorebirds and stuff like that. But you'll see flocks of eider, flocks of long-tailed ducks, um, mm-hmm. the 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 murs, the gilmots, um, Jaegers, all three species of Jaegers, um, and then you also have the the um, marine mammals. We have uh, in the spring they're kind of migrating past. We have beluga. We have a population of narwhal that uh, reside in this area, hundreds and hundreds. Uh, bowhead whales, um, ring seal, bearded seal, walrus up there a little bit. We don't have any right around town. Huh. And uh, what else do we have? Polar bear. Yeah, there's the odd polar bear up there. Too. Yeah, I guess that's a marine mammal, technically speaking. <laughs> it is, yes. Is there a, a birding community in Arctic Bay or none of it more generally? Um, Not a really strong one like you might see other otherwise, uh, other where. Mm-hmm. elsewhere i'll get it yet yeah. um but uh there's a growing population and of course people here of uh, uh are very closely tied to the land and 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 animals so people are very aware of the wildlife that's around here including birds i mean i, I every once in a while i know that you send me birds that people find in nunavut or in the arctic bay area uh, like rarities that turn up, like uh, oh, what was the last one? Like maybe ruby crown kinglet, and there was a, there may have been even like a purple gallinule a few years ago. The total number of species in the super far Arctic is not super high, so anytime something unusual comes up, people are going to pay attention. I imagine. Yeah, and it's none of it's a fairly small place in in a lot of ways. I mean, it's one fifth of Canada's yeah. landmass, but it's it's also. <laughs> It's also like one big community in many ways, lots of different connections. Uh, uh, six degrees of separation ends about four degrees earlier here. <laughs> and uh, so it word travels fast when there's something uh, around. And, and quite often, if you get a bit of a reputation as a bird guy, um, it, right. those sightings get pointed my way. <laughs> what is this? Well, when you started writing about Arctic Bay, online um what kind of response did you did you see back when i started the blog i was actually amazed that people read it um i kind of i kind of expected (laughs) maybe my mom and dad and uh, a couple of people i might have to pay to read it but it it grew and grew um so it kind of kind of surprised me and and again there's you know i'm lucky to live in a place where there's a huge amount of interest um across the world of it so there was people actually from from all over the world that uh, it would read it. It, it. Like I said, it was pretty amazing to me um, that people were interested. I had anything to say. You know, as a, as a birder and someone that was, you know, involved in the bird blogosphere, my, my knowledge about none of it for the most part is one, uh, none of it has a really cool flag and two, um, Claire Kynes lives there and writes about birds there and takes, you know, great photos. I, I imagine that I'm not alone in that. Maybe not the flag thing, but the second one for sure. <laughs> we do have a pretty cool flag. How long have you been in Arctic Bay and what, what brought you there in the first place? Um, well, this is our, my 21st year here. Um, although we had, we had briefly um, spent t- 10 months in 2018 in Iqaluit. We moved briefly to Iqaluit. Um, but then came back here to Arctic Bay. Um, I originally came up here with the RCMP, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. So I was posted here in '99, mm-hmm. and did the last four years of my service here before I retired. Yeah, and just enjoyed it so much that you stuck around. Yeah, I fell in love. So uh, 
Well, that'll do it. Yeah. Well, love is as good a reason to stay in a place as, as any, but there's a lot of really good reasons here to live here. Um, one of the things that really attracts me, <clears throat> besides my wife, uh, to Arctic Bay is um, the sense of community that that is here. Um, I mean, it didn't happen this year because of uh, COVID and the strange year that we're in, but uh, every year at Christmas time, we have games for two, three weeks where the entire community gets together and plays. There's not very many pe- places in the world where, where the entire community will get together and play. That's one of the things when, when, when there's troubled times, everybody gets together and everybody pulls together. And uh, that's one of the things that reminds me of growing up in a small town where I, where I did when I was um, in Manitoba. So, And as a nature lover, it sounds like there's no shortage of things to be amazed by <laughs> and to fill that interest as well. Yeah. And it's right out my door. I mean, <clears throat> I can, yeah. uh, a lot of the, a lot of the photos you might see that I've posted on, on various platforms are literally taking me walking across the street and, and standing on the shore and taking those photos. So. You are the, the count compiler for the northernmost Christmas bird count in the world in Arctic Bay. Uh, what, what is that like? What is count day for you? And, and what do you, what can you expect to see? Um, a lot of ravens. Um, yeah, so <laughs> it's cold, and I usually hold it on the last Sunday of the count period um, simply to maximize the amount of twilight we have. This year it was uh, literally the last day of the 5th. The sun sets in November, early November, November 5th, and it, doesn't, it won't come up again until uh, February 6th or 7th. And uh, so because of that, um, there's not a lot of light to, to do counts on. So generally I do it around a couple hours around, around lunchtime on the latest as I can because uh, we get mm-hmm. various amounts of, of um, twilight here. And as the, as the sun starts yeah. coming back, that twilight grows. It can be very cold. Sometimes it can be stormy. Uh, this year it was minus 37, but it was calm. So that's not too bad. Generally, I do a tour of, of town, um, check out the dog teams, uh, the dump. Uh, I love birding the dumps. <laughs> yeah, classic birding locations. Yeah. And then a few places where I'm likely to see some other, other species like ptarmigan. So um, quite often, yeah. the only bird, the only species that we count are, are ravens. This year was a count record at 371. Oh, all right. Yeah, um, but I can generally expect to get high 200s, around 300, uh, depending on how sometimes it's stormy and they're harder to find. What is the highest species count that you have had on the Arctic Bay Christmas bird count? This year, we beat the record by one, and that was four species. <laughs> so raven, uh, ptarmigan, which ptarmigan is it? It's a um, rock ptarmigan. Rock? rock ptarmigan. Rock. We get both here. Generally, the willows further south, and they tend to move south as winter yeah. goes on as well. The willow ptarmigan, I generally see when we go at, uh, fishing on a long weekend in May. We snowmobile about 10 hours south of here, and I usually see willow ptarmigan down that way. Um, but the other two were, were both species of, of red poles we saw this year. Oh, I was going to guess gold, but red pole, that's a little more exciting. <laughs> yeah, well, it's, it's amazing because they're such a tiny little bird, and they winter here. Um, you know, and yeah, uh, oh, totally. It's not something that, that you you would expect out of a, a bird that small. 
the, my, my only experience on the tundra was in Alaska and that was on St. Paul Island a few years ago. And it, um, it's amazing to me that like the, the numbers of some of the species like uh, Lapland longspur, for instance, and this was in fall. So obviously not winter, but, um, yeah, they're just like everywhere. Like the numbers, the abundance of some of these species is really overwhelming. That's got to be one of the more interesting things about birding in the in the high Arctic. Yeah, the the numbers of birds here in the spring because it's such a short period of time, and there's some, this massive breeding activity that goes on, and the raising of chicks and everything like that. And that's really spectacular. Towards the end of May. Um, Beginning of June, I start getting really anxious and heading out several times to see what's arriving and, and uh, what's here and and watching those numbers grow. But sadly, a lot of the numbers, especially with the shorebirds, are been in a downward trend. Yeah, I was going to ask, you know, so much has been made of the effects of, of climate change on birds and how the Arctic is feeling these effects more than anywhere else on the planet. Uh, you know, what phenomena have you personally witnessed in your two decades in Arctic Bay that, that have sort of impacted bird populations there, whether, you know, related to climate change or not? No, well, part of it is, um, is the, the change in weather that's accompanied the uh, climate change um, as we've gone along. Uh, we're a lot wetter in the, in the summers than we used to. Uh, the high Arctic is, is actually a a desert and and typically only gets about nine inches of, of precipitation a year about half that in in snowfall and half in rain um but the uh lately the the summers have been generally wetter and a lot more rain although this year was was a spectacular summer um we've had some late snowfalls which can happen mm-hmm. regardless but that's um both made it in some ways easier to, to see birds and also more difficult for those birds. And sometimes if that happens all over, all over the Island, um, yeah. the, the breeding birds will stop farther South, um, than here. Um, but in general, the one thing I've noticed mm. in, in general is, mm. is the, uh, every year, almost in the, the last few years, there's been less and less of the shorebirds that I would see typically every year. Yeah. So, so what sort of species are you are you looking at that would um, that you notice the most? Well, probably my the most common shorebird on on the, kind of, I've got a kind of favorite birding patch here. Uh, it's just out, outside of town. Um, the lake we get our water from, and the river that that flows into the ocean. So it's about a kilometer length of, of river and dry tundra, wet tundra. It's got a the the ocean. It's got a nice mix, and I've seen forty one species of birds in that little patch of uh, heaven. Um, and typically, mm-hmm. the most common shorebird there is is a Baird sandpiper. These we see semi palmated plovers um, um, in that area quite often. There's a there's been a good population of breeding pairs there. Um, last few years. It's been hard, to, harder to find uh, breeding birds, and this year was was a little better for the semi-palmated plovers, and and I could find found about uh, five nesting pairs down there. But the last previous two years, I could only find one. What is it like to be in a Baird's sandpiper? I, I it's not necessarily a colony, but it's sort of a loose, you know, area. I, what 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 do their nests look like? What are they doing? 
because they're so common here, like I say, they're probably our most common um, shorebird right around Arctic Bay. Um, so they will nest anywhere from uplands. So you can be, you know, higher up the, the hills and the mountains on some dry tundra or wet tundra, you'll find them there. Um, in this particular habitat, again, they have a, kind of a wide variety of, of areas. They'll, they'll nest in dry tundra. They'll nest on top, top of uh, tussocks in, in some wetter tundra. Um, their nest is basically um, a, a shallow cup into the, the vegetation. Um, and if you happen to get near one, they'll, they'll do a, a, a distraction display to try and lead you away. With spring on the way, what, what is the timing? And, and to me, well, we'll start getting snow buntings back in, in April. Um, the, the red poles will start being more <clears throat> obvious. Early May, we'll see glaucus gulls. Probably about two weeks after that, you'll see thayers. Um, again, if you went out to the flow edge where the water was open, you'd see a lot uh, more, more species. As things open up and beginning of June, you, typically you, you'll start seeing more and more shorebirds arrive, um, some waterfowl, uh, the loons probably have one of the most northerly breeding pairs of Pacific loons here that uh, I kind of think of my own. I've been <laughs> following them closely for about 10 years and watching their success or lack of success. Yeah. It's so it's so weird to think that that's so far north that, that they wrap around into the Arctic Sea and come down in the northeast of, of Canada. <laughs> yeah, no, there uh, we, we have a lot of of um, uh, red-throated loons here. That's our most common loon species. A uh, little farther north, although we see them here mm -hmm. as well. But uh, not north, a little farther south. Um, say 50, 60, 100 kilometers here, which is still our area, um, you'll see a lot more uh, yellow-billed loons. Um, there are reports of common loons over towards Pond Inlet uh, from time to time. Uh, there was one reported in Nikalawit this year, which is about 1,200 kilometers south of us. Um, and uh, we do quite well on loon species. Claire Kynes is a photographer, a birder, and naturalist in Arctic Bay. Nunavut. You can find his work, which is really spectacular. I encourage you to check it out at clairekindsphotography.ca. Um, thank you so much, Claire. Hang in there. Uh, spring is spring is around the corner, as you undoubtedly know more than most. <laughs> yeah, I'm starting to get anxious already. There were three weeks away from the sun coming back, so that's a nice time. This is Beth, and I am calling from Murray, Utah. But I'm calling to tell you about the first time that I saw a pileated woodpecker. The pileated woodpecker, for a brief time, was a nemesis bird for me. As I said, I live in Utah, and we don't have them around here. But I spent a few years living in the Midwest, where despite many, many attempts to go and find the pileated woodpecker, I had yet to see it. A few years after moving back to Utah, my friends and I were on a birding trip to Point Reyes National Seashore, in Northern California. The pileated woodpecker was one of the top birds that I really wanted to see on this trip because I had missed it so many times in the Midwest. We were camping um, in the park in a campground that was about a mile to a mile and a half up the trail. And it was our last day and we were walking out and so we had all of our gear on our backs. 
as we were walking out, my friend had mentioned, we started talking about wildflowers and my friend had mentioned a wildflower that she had seen on the trail, which I had missed. And so we turned around and walked about a quarter mile back up the way we came so I could see this wildflower. And I was feeling a little silly and a little guilty about making my friends turn around just so I could see this wildflower. And my friend said, oh, you don't need to worry about it. It's when you do random stuff like this that you're rewarded with a pileated woodpecker. And we laughed about it and we saw the wildflower and we had just gotten back to about where we had turned around when we heard a woodpecker calling off in the distance. At first we thought it was just a northern flicker, but because my friend had mentioned the pileated woodpecker, we pulled out our phones and played the call. And... We were playing the Northern Flicker call and the Pileated Woodpecker call back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And finally, I was like, I just don't know if I can tell the difference. When all of a sudden, out of nowhere, comes this Pileated Woodpecker that's flying right towards us. He lands in these big trees right over our heads and disappears, makes one really loud call, and then flies off and disappears as quickly as he came. And that is the first and only time I've seen a pileated woodpecker. Thank you so much, Beth. If you would like to send along a pileated woodpecker story for me to use on the podcast, go to a quiet place, put the phone mic right up close to your mouth and record that sucker in the voice memo app on your phone. You can send it along to me at podcast.aba.org. The American Birding Podcast is brought to you by the American Birding Association. If you like what we do, please consider joining the ABA. You'll get our magazines, lots of them these days, discounts to our partners, and the knowledge that you are helping to build this better birding community here in North America and beyond. Get information about all of our memberships, including e-memberships at aba.org slash join. I do want to make some shout outs this time around. Two, Whitney and Jonathan Yorger of Zionsville, Indiana, Jonathan Creel of White Rock, New Mexico, John Boswell of Tucson, Arizona, Cynthia Gray of Chicago, Illinois, Jeffrey White and the entire White household of Greenback, Tennessee, Zachary Komen of Battleboro, Vermont, Paul Kilpack of Linden, Utah, William Eccles of Dulles, Virginia, Jack Reese and Patricia Carr Reese of Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Kelly O'Connor of Newberry, Florida, Juliana Tyson and the Tyson household of Milton, Vermont, Adam Hayes and family of Waukesha, Wisconsin, Mark Ruin of Dayton, Ohio, Quinn Herner of Laramie, Wyoming, David Turley of Salt Lake City, Utah, and Joe Moore of Clementon, New Jersey, all of whom recently joined or rejoined the ABA and noted this podcast as a reason for doing so. Thank you so much. There've been a lot of you these days is there something like a some sort of internet challenge going on that i haven't heard about i, I appreciate it nonetheless executive producer of the podcast and president of the aba is jeffrey gordon he doesn't like to categorize bays you probably give arctic bay a seven or an eight but it's awfully hard to rank an inlet technical production is by john lowry who once lost his mobile home in southern nunavut and had to go door to door asking where's the rv at Additional help comes from David Hartley and Greg Neese, who between them have never been invited into a domed dwelling made of ice or snow. So they're always asking, what's an igloo lick? You can find us online at aba.org, on Facebook at facebook.com slash birders, on Instagram at American Birding Association, and on Twitter at ABA. I want to thank Claire Kynes again for chatting about Arctic Bay with me. It was a wide-ranging conversation. He told me if he's going to chat about Baffin Island, we'll chat about all of it or none of it. 
Just so you know, these credits absolutely killed in Arctic Canada. Questions, comments, corrections can come to podcast.aba.org. I'm Nate Swick. Thank you for listening. Stay healthy. See you next week.